again, everyone. Welcome to Wired to be Weird, a podcast about the brain, its quirks, the stuff it does, the mistakes it makes, the drugs it takes, and how it interacts with the world. Usually, Bo, my conversation partner, and I will explore a single topic in about 40 to 50 minute chunks at a time. However, I've been doing these video live streams over Twitter that are devoted to shorter explorations of a larger number of topics, and I've had enough people say they'd like to be able to download at least the audio from them, so I thought I might as well just record podcast versions of them. So these podcasts won't be as deep as our typical podcasts, which we'll continue to do, but it's still a fun way to keep up to date on some of the work that's been going on in neuroscience. So, since they're smaller episodes, we're going to call them Neurobytes. So, to get started, my research focuses on understanding the neurophysiology of emotion, and anxiety in particular, as well as how those circuits play roles in addiction. I also like talking to people outside of neuroscience, and science in general, about new discoveries, both because I think it's important for scientists to keep everyone up to date with what we're getting up to, but also as a reason to read outside of my own specific points of focus, to expand my familiarity with biology to a broader set of interests. So while my primary goal is to help make it easier for people outside of science to get an idea of what we scientists have been getting up to, it's actually been good for my own work because it's frequently the case that the various systems in our body operate according to similar dynamics. For example, the ways that our immune system's antibodies recognize and bind to pathogens to help us overcome things like the flu or strep throat share some features with the ways that a neurotransmitter in our brain, like serotonin or dopamine, binds to a receptor. Parts of how our brain signals when we've had enough to eat, that were satiated, in other words, share some similarities with how our brain detects that it's time to stop producing a stress hormone like cortisol because we're no longer being chased by a coyote or we've just finished taking a test or we've just finished getting interviewed for a new job. How often are you chased by coyotes? Well, if you live in California, you never know. <laughs> if you go mountain biking, you know. I've seen a lot of coyotes. Anyways. <laughs> so, every now and then, knowledge of some other process in the body can help us to better understand what may at first pass seem like a different, unrelated system in our body. One of the stories that we'll discuss today is a great example of that happening, where scientists have shown that a protein involved in how our neurons interact with one another intriguingly shares some characteristics with what happens when a virus infects a cell, opening the door to the discovery of a completely novel mechanism by which neurons can transfer genetic material to one another. So they didn't know how neurons interacted before? No, this is just an, an additional one. Right, and we'll get into it, right? This is a new mechanism by which, a new way that neurons are conversing with one another apart from or in, in addition to what we already knew. Okay, so it's like neurons in the past, we knew they spoke to each other, but now they also like text each other. <laughs> kind of, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so then we'll talk about an article that was written by a couple of neuroscientists at the end of last year that engages a topic that's been sort of sparsely discussed in the past, about a minority of people, and to be honest, I suspect I'm one of these people, who are unable to imagine in the form of images. In other words, why is it that when I ask you to imagine there's an octopus floating in front of you, some people are much better at literally visualizing an octopus, seeing the little suckers on its eight tentacles puckering in the light glinting off their slick and soft skin, while others are entirely unable to conjure a visual experience in pursuit of such an image. Okay, so let's get started. The way the brain forms memories is fairly complicated and a topic of ongoing research. I was at the Society for Neuroscience conference in Washington, D.C. last November presenting some of the work I've been doing, 
And while my work focuses on mood and anxiety and addiction, there's a learning and memory component to addiction. So not only do I find this area of research intrinsically fascinating, but it's also not so distally relevant to my own domain within neuroscience. So I made it a point to visit at least some of the presentations by groups in this domain of neuroscience, right? And one could easily devote every active hour of the five-day conference to taking in solely research in learning and memory. And I have to miss out completely on every other domain of research, like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, sensory perception, addiction, and like the nitty-gritty uh, physiology at the ion channel or receptor level, and genetics, and, and so on. My point being that there are a ton of researchers focusing entirely on trying to better understand how memory operates. The ability for neurons in our brain to send signals to one another is the fundamental property of brain cells that enables everything from our ability to see and hear to our ability to form memories. And they do this in a variety of ways. One way they communicate with one another is to release and receive neurotransmitters like serotonin or dopamine. Another is by sending electrical impulses to one another, otherwise called action potentials. Just these two means of neuronal communication enable two very different kinds of signaling. One is comparatively more rapid, the electrical impulses, while the neurotransmitters take longer to complete their signaling. They have to be synthesized via some biochemical reaction involving a variety of precursor molecules or genetic machinery doing their business, and be transported from wherever they're synthesized within the neuron down to the presynaptic terminal if necessary. Then, they have to be released by one neuron, which involves a surprisingly complicated sequence of events, uh, and then the molecules have to travel across the synaptic cleft and bind a receptor on the other side of the synaptic cleft that's on the postsynaptic body. Then, whatever receptor activation does within the receiving cell also takes time to occur. So, in other words, these two mechanisms of neural communication afford our neurons both a long and a short way to interact with one another, and they influence each other's activities. One way to think of this is to compare your ability to interact with someone over email versus by traditional mail. You can send someone some text, an image, an audio recording, or even a video over email. You can communicate quite a bit with that, and the messages arrive basically instantaneously. It's a very efficient way to communicate. Via traditional mail, on the other hand, we can send one another text, images, and video, but we can also send each other things like tea, wine, food, and mugs, right? You can send someone a memento that you purchased them while on a trip to Texas, or Toronto, or Burgundy in France, or the Himalayas. I can send someone some seeds from the orchids I've crossed to a friend across the world, and once those seeds were planted, they could grow entirely new orchids. So, with email, we sacrifice the freedom to interact with one another in a variety of ways, more physical ways, for the ability to instantaneously communicate thoughts, images, and video, while we accept the time delay for the ability to interact in more nuanced ways with traditional mail. There's a similar difference between electrical impulses and neurotransmitters. Electrical impulses travel between neurons far more rapidly, while neurotransmitters, traveling more slowly, can convey more complicated and nuanced signals. Well. How, do, how does your brain or how do the neurons know which method of communication to use? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a, it's a bit more complicated, right? They don't know, right? They're just responding to different signals. And it's, it's sort of a, I mean, it's uh, automatic isn't the right word, but it's sort of a, a, a baked into the cake kind of relationship. So in other words, there's a relationship between the electrical signals and the release of neurotransmitters and different neurons synthesize different neurotransmitters. So if a dopamine neuron is stimulated, it's going to release some dopamine and potentially some other neurotransmitters. If a serotonin neuron, on the other hand, is stimulated, um, then it'll re release serotonin and not dopamine. 
Okay, well then, how does the, what types of, okay, is there a correlation between the type of signaling that's used, uh, which of course is associated with a particular type of neuron, and the type of macro emotion or movement or whatever the brain's trying to do? Oh, okay. <laughs> That's a pretty huge, huge topic. But, but okay, so maybe, maybe this will clarify a little bit. So there will never be neuro, well, there'll be very, very seldomly neurotransmitter released in the absence of an electrical signal, right? So in other words, to release neurotransmitter, an electrical signal has to be received. And then, yeah, certain neurotransmitters in very specific circuits within the brain will be associated with joy or moving my arm, right? But, you know, it's not like dopamine or serotonin is always associated with feeling good or feeling bad. It depends on where in the brain the dopamine is being released and onto which neurons. Okay, so both types of signaling uh, are just used constantly throughout the day with your brain. So what, what is the, can you give me an analogy of what's the advantage of having like the, the fastness of the electrical signal versus the more nuanced signal of the neurotransmitters? Right, yeah, that, no, that's a great question. So, um, so first I should say that they're, they're very interrelated, right? So you're not gonna have chemical signaling without the electro component, right? It's electrochemical signaling. But what the chemical component of electrochemical signaling allows you to do or allows the brain to do is modulate with uh, significantly greater uh, nuance and complexity. So, so imagine if all you had was the electrical signaling. That would be like a DJ sitting in front of a mixer but all that he or she has at his disposal or her disposal is just a master volume, right? So all you could control is how loud the song is. That's it, right? With, um, with the chemical component, with you know, uh, neurotransmitters, imagine now the DJ has a whole you know, large number of knobs that control a different note of the song. And so you can turn up one note and turn down another note. You can introduce a whole new note to the song. And so in that way, right, you can control much more of the the total song rather than just, you know, is it loud or is it soft? All right, awesome. Well, a team at the University of Utah Health has shown that a signaling protein called ARC, a protein that was identified long ago, actually, but with a poorly understood function, ARC seems to play a role in part of that neuron-to-neuron -neuron communication. And prior studies had shown that when the ability to express that protein was removed from a mouse's brain, the mouse's memory was weakened, and it exhibited lower levels of neuroplasticity, even at younger ages, when the brain is at its most neuroplastic. So, there is good reason to suspect it might be involved in memory at some basic level. However, what this team observed was pretty unique. It turned out, when they looked at neurons in a dish under a microscope, and looked specifically at what that protein, ARC, was doing, it seemed to be aggregating with itself to form structures that looked a lot like structures that we see typically formed by viruses. In other words, it looked like little copies of the protein arc were self-assembling into shapes that look quite a bit like the shapes that viruses form in nature, or to be specific, little parts of viruses called capsids. Now you may be familiar with what a gene is, right? It's a series of small molecules called nucleic acids, A's, T's, C's, and G's, in very specific sequences. 
One sequence will give you the code to make a dopamine receptor. Another code will give you a serotonin receptor, or a muscle fiber, or an endorphin, and so on. And so these are genes, right? And genes are the codes to make proteins. And just like unique sequences of A's, T's, C's, and G's code for unique genes that make unique proteins, a unique series of different larger molecules is what will form a protein. So you might have heard of things like tryptophan, right? Oftentimes discussed quite a bit around Thanksgiving for purely mythological reasons, by the way. And, and uh, tryptophan is one of those molecules that can be used to make a protein. Tryptophan, tyrosine, leucine, methionine, and about 16 other molecules can all be combined in unique ways to make unique proteins. So when we say that a certain gene codes for a certain protein, what we mean is that a specific sequence of nucleic acids, A's, T's, C's, and G's, combine that are ultimately converted into a new sequence that's composed of amino acids like tryptophan. Okay, so just to clarify, <laughs> okay. the A's, T's, C's, and G's are the stuff that make up genes. That's right. Which is the stuff that is essentially your DNA. Yep, that's right. The DNA gets transcribed to RNA. That's correct. I didn't and mention then, that. <laughs> and then the transcription is uh, amino acids. Okay, so it goes DNA transcribed to RNA. Yeah, and that's right again. It's, it's, yes, it's, correct. It's read again to form amino, amino acids. acids. Right, yeah. So okay. RNA is then translated to amino acids. Translated to amino acids, of which uh, tryptophan is a type of yes, amino acid. correct. And then those amino acids essentially cluster together and link up together and form proteins. Yeah, basically. The amino acids are the physical stuff of a protein, and they're folded into the various shapes. You know, one shape will be a serotonin receptor, a different shape will be a muscle fiber, right? Okay. Got it. Okay, so none of that's going to be on the test at the end of this podcast, but <laughs> when we say that a person inherited their mother's gene for a dopamine receptor or their father's genes for brown eyes, we're saying that essentially the same sequence of A's, T's, C's, and G's that are present in the kid's genome are also present in their mother's or father's. And that fact enables us to trace the origins of genes through history, because we can go from children to parent, then to the parent's parent, and then the parent's parent's parents, right? And so on to see how far back a certain gene goes before we discover the gene from which it originated. And we can go back very, very far with that method of tracing, even all the way back to before humans were even around. Let's take that gene that codes for a specific dopamine receptor, right? Is the same basic gene present in chimpanzees, one of humans' closest genetic relative? Yes. What about bonobos, our other closest relative? Yes? Okay, then let's go further down the evolutionary tree, checking other animals who share some last common ancestor. We can go to gorillas, then to orangutans, then old world monkeys, then new world monkeys, and keep asking that question all the way down the phylogenetic tree. Aren't we supposed to share, like, some 60% of our genes with bananas or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's something like that, right? And it makes sense, right? I mean, we're all life, right? And, you know, at some point we all have a last common ancestor. Right, but <laughs> if, if you go back far enough, but uh, yeah, I don't think bananas are... Maybe we were all bananas. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think we're all descended from a banana. That's not quite how it works, but, you know, we do share some genetic material, right? So, uh, yeah. Okay, just kidding. <laughs> so as we're going down that phylogenetic tree, right, that evolutionary tree, we can ask, do they all have the same gene? Or has the sequence changed? Has it changed dramatically or indeed just slightly? We can climb our way down that evolutionary tree pretty far, tracing how many of those animals on the way share a certain gene. 
and go to animals that begin to resemble humans less and less. Some genes have only existed for a short period of time, while other genes have existed largely unchanged for millions, tens of millions, and even hundreds of millions of years. Viruses have existed on Earth for a very, very long time. There are even some theories that viruses were the earliest precursors to life, engaging in biochemical reactions to form complex organic shapes, almost like the process of crystallization forming large replicating lattices, generating things like quartz or pyrite or even diamond. Which, I admit, is part of the reason that I collect minerals. Well, viruses form cool shapes too, and there are a variety. They can be helical, icosahedral, or prolate, which basically translates to rod-shaped, a faceted sphere sort of shape, and an elongated faceted sphere kind of shape. And so, when the group looked at the shapes that ARC was aggregating into under a microscope, what they saw looked a lot like one of those shapes that we associate with viruses. And so this inspired them to evaluate if there might be similarities at the sequence level. And lo and behold, there were substantial similarities. So, there are similarities in the structures ARC can form when compared to viruses, and those similarities are even reflected at the sequence level of ARC and a virus. Next, they wanted to further scrutinize those structures that ARC can self-assemble into. Namely, are these little virus structures forming a hollow little sphere-like shape in which it might store some genetic material of some sort? And so what they did is they added some of these ARC capsid-type shapes to a dish of neurons and observed that ARC capsids seemed to transfer some stored genetic material, mRNA in this case, to the neurons in the dish. And that's a pretty big deal because mRNA is basically what genes are transcribed into before they're translated into proteins, right? Like we said before. So if these ARC capsid things could convey that mRNA into another cell, then that mRNA could easily become a protein in that new cell, despite the fact that the original gene was actually expressed in a different cell. Is this kind of like uh, someone stealing your Amazon package off your front porch? <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Got it. Because it was ordered by a different person, but then, uh, you know. Taken to a different location. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's exactly like that. <laughs> okay. So when a typical virus infects a cell, it sort of tricks the cell's own expression machinery, enzymes and so on, to manufacture even more copies of the virus within the cell. That's how viruses reproduce themselves. So the team asked if these ARC capsids might be capable of something comparable. And so they saw that neurons were releasing copies of ARC in a way that could be characterized as similar, though less harmful to neurons. Something unique about ARC when compared to viruses, though, is that copies of ARC are manufactured after many neurons fire an impulse. Right? In fact, in my own work, I've used levels of ARC as an indication of recent neuronal activation. If you look at the large banner-sized image on my Twitter profile, in fact, the neurons that are green, as opposed to red, recently had the ARC part of the genome expressed because the neurons had recently been activated. So, instead of forcing neurons to just endlessly manufacture more copies of a virus until the cells literally burst open, spewing more copies of the virus to infect more cells, ARC is sort of relying on neurons being activated to release more copies of itself. An interesting and likely an important difference. Now, as we said earlier, some genes are older than others, evolutionarily speaking. And there's an interesting relationship between the genomes of animals and the genomes of very ancient viruses. And, in fact, in some cases, the predecessors to certain types of viruses that are capable of not only infecting a cell, but actually inserting its own genetic material into the very genome of the cells. Basically, implanting a new gene into the genome. 
this kind of an event may be what generated the gene for ARC that we all have, with significant similarities between the ARC protein and a type of protein encoded by these genome-altering viruses called GAG. So, what this means is that this is a system that's capable of transmitting RNA between neurons. ARC can encapsulate RNA, can be released by cells and taken up by other cells through endocytosis, and can deliver genetic material between cells, which reveals a new way by which neurons can communicate information to one another, in addition to the electrochemical pathways that we discussed uh, towards the beginning. The authors suggest that this may be just one example of such an intracellular transfer of genetic information between neurons, potentially representing an important component of how things like memory, cognition, and other processes that rely upon longer-term gene expression and neuroplasticity are processed in the brain. All right, so let me see if I got this. So ARC is a protein that right. our body makes naturally. Right. So, and every time a neuron fires, it just spews out ARC. <laughs> yeah, it so, creates ARC. Right, yes. And uh, so ARC, like you said, is can be used as an indicator of a neuron firing recently. Right. Um, but now they've studied ARC and realized that it's actually used as a transport system transporting RNA across different cells. That's right. Great. It kind of has an app name too, like a ARC, you know, transferring <laughs> stuff across water <laughs> fluids. Oh, an ARC, like with a K. Yeah, yeah, so this is ARC with a C, but yeah, that's, that's good. <laughs> oh, that's really cute. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Okay, so that was part one of this Neurobite. And now moving on to part two. Okay, if I ask you to imagine that there's a butterfly that just landed on your hand and it's slowly flapping its wings, open and closed, open and closed, there are some scientists who argue that there are two groups of us that just had very different experiences. In 1880, a scientist named Sir Francis Galton suggests that there's a wide variability in just how vividly we experience an imagined image, with some people reporting absolutely no power of visualizing whatsoever. Now. Sir Francis Galton was highly prolific and, among other things, was a pioneer of meteorology, as well as a pioneer of the nature versus nurture debate, literally coining the phrase. He also, however, was the pioneer of eugenics, also literally coining that term. However, since his work on the topic, it's largely been untouched until fairly recently. A group composed of scientists at the University of Exeter Medical School, University of Edinburgh, and Harriet Watt University, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that university, um, they worked together and developed an interest in this observation, suggesting that there may be something to this. They reported a case of what they called, quote, pure Im uh, imagery generation disorder, unquote, which was a 65-year-old man who developed an inability to conjure images in his mind's eye after coronary angioplasty. And this was followed by the authors being contacted by other individuals who described themselves as also having a, quote, blind imagination though theirs had been lifelong. And so the group coined the term aphantasia for this phenomenon and worked with 21 people who contacted them. The authors provided a questionnaire and found that participants generally became aware of this potential condition during their adolescence or in their 20s, when interactions with others revealed to them that most people who see things in their mind's eye actually have a quasi-visual experience, while others don't. Only some of them reported affected relatives who shared this inability to truly visualize imagined images, 
And when compared to 121 controls, these volunteers' rating of visualization was quite significantly lower. And since then, other neuroscientists, computer scientists, and enthusiasts in general have polled their friends unscientifically, finding that there did indeed appear to be a pretty substantial disagreement as to just how vivid imagined images are. So, to return to our butterfly, perhaps some of you experienced a visualization of a beautiful blue butterfly, because it's probably one of the most famous types of butterflies, the gorgeous Morpho. Or perhaps you saw something a bit more unique, like some complicated shapes and colored butterflies, because you're a butterfly enthusiast, right? And you've seen more types of butterflies. Or perhaps you really more experienced a kind of vague visualization of the shape of a butterfly with no real distinguishing features. Or perhaps you're more like me, with purely the idea of a butterfly being conjured at my suggestion and absolutely zero visual experience whatsoever. Nothing at all beyond the simple thought of what a butterfly is and some vague approximation of what it might look like. Almost like what would happen if you, your computer generated an image of a butterfly, but the screen is shut off with no visible image generated. Some data suggests that around 2% of the population experiences this, quote, congenital aphantasia, unquote, though this is clearly a little studied possible phenomenon and not much more beyond an approximation. So at what point did you realize that your visual experience or lack thereof was different from other people's? You know, I, I always had sort of a suspicion um, because, you know, I played sports throughout high school and, um, you know, I would always hear coaches say, visualize it, you know, visualize it. And I kind of, in the back of my mind, I always wondered why use the term visualize you know, I just assumed that they meant just imagine and they're just using a sort of evocative term for it. Um, and then, you know, I would have conversations with, you know, friends of mine and they'd say, they'd sort of talk about what they're imagining in a much more tangible visual way. Um, but it wasn't until I sort of read about this, this type of work that I realized that there might very well be some substantive difference in the experiences that people are having. And, you know, perhaps there's a sort of spectrum component to this, where some experience would strike me as being essentially a hallucination of a visual experience when prompted, only available to me when I'm dreaming, while others experience something more like a shadow of a visual experience, with bona fide aphantasiacs like me experiencing no visualization at all. Or is it that the vast majority experience is largely the same visual experience, right? But we're all just suffering from a poverty of sufficiently accurate language to effectively describe the nature of their experience to one another. One can imagine there might be a component to this idea that's comparable to describing the experience of the color green to someone who's red-green colorblind. You know, describe the color green. And don't cheat the challenge by saying things like it's the color of leaves on a tree or the color of grass or guacamole or U.S. dollars, right? Because by doing that, you're actually describing those other things in service of trying to describe what may be an unexplainable experience. Keep it to describing just the color green. And I've never seen someone do this. You know, you might say, Ian, that's super simple. It's 520 nanometers. But, of course, that opens up the dorm room debate of whether or not we all experience that wavelength along the electromagnetic spectrum in precisely the same way. Or if your green appears to you as purple appears to me. There's really no perfect resolution to that debate. But I think we can probably get closer to an answer with enough input from enough people on the topic of aphantasia. This is so like that dress 
meme that was going around. <laughs> a little right? bit, yeah. Because it's the same picture, but everybody's interpreting that color as a different word. Yeah, yeah, and that, that involves something called color constancy, which we can talk about in, in the future at some point. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough because, you know, we really don't have language devoted to the nuances of, you know, sensory experiences, right? We just have a term, color, <laughs> right? We all sort of agree. Um, but so, uh, in other words, there may not be much to this beyond it just revealing the flaws of language and communicating the subtleties of experience beyond just actions, objects, ideas, and emotions and thoughts, right? Some go one further, though beyond solely vision, suggesting that this inability to visualize is just part of a broader ex uh, difference in the ability to conjure sensory experiences in general. So one may not only be incapable of conjuring a visual experience, but a sound, taste, or feeling as well. And I would again put myself in this camp. So really you can't imagine what something would taste like? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I sort of, I can pull up the categories of a taste, you know, so like, um, you know, I really like, uh, you know, truffle or, you know, I really like lobster, for example. Um, and, you know, I would recognize those flavors and, you know, the nanosecond you put it on, on my tongue, right? Not quite the nanosecond, but whatever, very, very rapidly. Um, but I can't like, you know, visit that flavor and get sort of like a small dose of that flavor. Like it's just, I can think of the pleasure associated with it, the emotions associated with it and stuff like that, but not like um, having a small dose of the experience. So I totally can. Wow. And uh, I know this because a few years ago, there was a, uh, a Dr. Pepper commercial on the radio mm. that was like, imagine yourself opening up a Dr. Pepper. Doesn't that taste good? Blah, blah, blah. And it totally worked. It made me want Dr. Pepper so bad because I could literally taste it. See, I mean, that just blows my mind. I mean, to me, that sounds like you're on, you know, acid or something. <laughs> like you're just experiencing these, you know, fabricated sensory experiences. To me, I feel like, you know, I'd just be constantly bombarded with like, you know, these, you know, false sensory experiences. But that's very interesting. Um, so... Uh, the authors propose that perhaps further knowledge of the smaller structures of the brain and the inter-individual variability in those structures may give way to a more objective answer to this question. And as the ever-optimist with regards to what we'll continue to learn by studying the microscopic structures of the brain, I tend to agree. But until then, we'll have to rely on the reports of volunteers trying to learn from each other's experiences. And so here are some of the questions that have been produced by um, the group at the University of Exeter, as well as, as some of the people who engaged with the topic. And so the answers to these questions may only be the following. No image at all, vague and dim, moderately clear, reasonably clear, and as vivid as real life, right? So it's one of those five, on a scale of one to five, basically. Okay, so here are the prompts. And uh, remember to answer them uh, using the responses that Ian just went over. So the first prompt is conjure up an image of a friend or relative that you frequently see. How clearly can you see the contours of their face, head, shoulders, and body? Okay, the next one is still imagining that friend or relative, how strongly can you see the characteristic poses of their head and body? Next prompt, how well can you envision the way that this friend or relative walks? the length of their step, for example. Then rate how vivid the colors of that person's clothes look in your mind. Visualize a rising sun and look carefully at the details of the mental picture. How clearly do you see that sun rising 
above the horizon in a hazy sky. Imagine the sky clearing and surrounding the sun with blueness. How vivid is that image? Clouds appear in your sky and a lightning storm erupts. How well can you see it? A rainbow appears in your sky. How clearly can you make it out? And so, th yeah, those are the prompts. And so people that they'd characterize as having congenital aphantasia would answer no image at all to all of those prompts. And I find this possibility very interesting, and it coaxes me to both hope that sensory neuroscientists will clarify these questions, but even further, I do wonder if this is indeed characterizing a genuine variation in sensory management, if there might be substantial differences when aphantasiacs and neurotypical people are exposed to a drug that modifies sensory perception, when these two groups of people are exposed to a drug like LSD or, or psilocybin or even more mundane drugs like alcohol. You know, absinthe comes to mind, right? Notoriously hallucinogenic, but not really hallucinogenic. <laughs> Could it be the case that aphantasiacs like me are just significantly less likely to experience, you know, sensory hallucinations while the norm are just much readier to experience vivid sensory distortions. Do some people actually hallucinate after drinking absinthe? But then, you know, what about trauma? Are the ramifications of a traumatic experience, one that could give way to, you know, PTSD perhaps, are they more capable of throwing people without aphantasia into more immersive reliving of their traumatic experience with people literally seeing their traumas while aphantasiacs are protected against this kind of recurring trauma? What about something like meditation, where there are some groups who actively seek the manifestation of basically pseudo-psychedelic or, or at least altered states of consciousness? Can these folks truly explore a guided scenario while meditating, while I'm just sitting there breathing deeply, experiencing only the pleasant emotional components of, you know, imagining these scenarios? Like, you know, you're walking along a pink sand beach with a light warm breeze, not too hot, not too cold, with the waves of the ocean gently lapping up against the shore as your feet sink gently into the undisturbed sand with each step. I can't know for sure at this point, right? Though I can certainly get myself to imagine how this could be the case. And we'll have to wait until, you know, other neuroscientists do the work to see if there really is so significant a difference in how our brains can conjure, you know, visual and other sensory experiences. So with that, we've concluded our first Neurobytes episode. Yay! <laughs> so we discussed a potentially novel means of communication between neurons that closely resembles the way that viruses infect cells, enabling neurons to trade genetic material in the form of mRNA after firing impulses. And then we talked about a possible difference in the way that people can imagine visual experiences, a condition informally referred to as aphantasia. And so if you want to give me your thoughts or suggest topics, you can reach me at underscore anthropoid on Twitter. And so, until our next episode, thanks for listening.